Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is HCD. My name is Jerry Scullion and I'm a human-centred design practitioner based in Sydney, Australia. Before we jump in, however, as this podcast was recorded in the Sydney CBD, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as our traditional custodians of the land where we meet today and pay respect to their elders, both past and present. This episode is a special one-off episode. We held a live breakfast in the beautiful offices of Future U in Sydney, high amongst all the buildings at sunrise and in front of a sellout audience, all whilst raising over $800 for Cara Care through ticket sales. Our special guest in the morning was Jerry Gaffney, co-author of the highly respected book, Forms That Work. We discussed how forms reveal the true nature of an organisation with myself and co-hosts Adrian Tan and Mark Tanzeridi. In this episode, we take the time to peel back the layers to uncover the true meaning and objectives of forms, where forms are going, and what we can do as practitioners to ensure that the organisations that we work for are delivering the best experiences for their customers. In true Jerry Gaffney style, however, we had lots of laughs and some great questions from the audiences at the end. For anyone who's seen Jerry speak at conferences around the world will know how an amazing a speaker he is on design-related topics, and in this episode, he was no different. Now, I'd like to pay special thanks to Ashling Walsh at Future U, who had to convince me that this was something we could make work. Future U covered the cost for the breakfast and were extremely hospitable. I can't speak highly enough of the calibre of this recruitment agency, who are based in Sydney and in Melbourne. They have roles in product management and UX, and uh, for more information, please see the show notes or visit their websites at future-u.com.au. So let's jump straight in. Jerry, very welcome to the This Is HCD podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Jerry, tell us a little bit about yourself and how you get into design. You said 10 minutes for this bit, right? No, two minutes, Jerry, would be be, be fantastic. Uh, Kind of by accident, to be honest. Uh, I have a background originally in um, electronic hardware, and I did a lot of tech support type stuff, and then moved from there into documentation and training. I realized I was trying to fix UI problems in the documentation and training. still do that, actually, sometimes, but you're not supposed to. And then, uh, you know... Fell from that really into user-centered design, heard about the field, went to a couple of conferences where people were talking about UCD, handed everyone I knew to try and get a job in that sort of area, and I've been working in user-centered design UX ever since. So when was, when was this? What a long time ago. A long time ago. Yeah. Non, non-specific. In a galaxy far, far away. <clears throat> Fair enough. So today's topic was, um, you can claim to be user-centered and empathetic. Your marketing teams can talk about how much you value your customers. You can say that you design services for citizens, but when people encounter your forms, where real interaction occurs, then your true nature is revealed. So Jerry, discuss the origins of this topic. Well, I think um, the thing you sent me said 100 words, um, <laughs> <laughs> and that's 100 words. Perfectly. No, but seriously, um, you know, I've worked on and off in forums for many, many years. Actually, I don't know how many years, but a lot of years. I also fell into forums by accident, and I'll tell you how that happened. I was working with um, a telco, I was working with Telstra at the time, mm-hmm. and they had a lot of forums that people were supposed to fill in for doing things like getting ISDN, which is an old digital stuff that nobody mm-hmm. uses anymore. And they wanted to do the usual, oh, let's put them online. And, and I was looking at their original paper forms, there were reams and reams of pages that as it turned out when I did some contextual inquiry and research nobody actually filled in it was done by the internal staff within the organisation mm. although nobody realised that they thought that humans out in the field were filling them in and I was looking at the forms thinking these really need some design work I wasn't I didn't have any expertise in forms I had a fair amount of expertise in interaction user centred design and I thought somebody really needs to 
you know, help these people produce better forms. Where's the book that I can go and buy that describes how to do it? And uh, I ended up putting out a query on some of the, the news groups asking what book people could recommend to give to clients. And Caroline Jarrett contacted me and said, what would be in such a book, Jerry? And I sort of went back with my suggested table of contents and she said, do you want to actually collaborate on a book because she'd already started one? So... I sort of fell into forms that way. And initially for me, it was just something that was a basic, like a user interface, what's in the form, what components of it go where, how should it look and so on. But as I got deeper into it, it really became obvious to me that the form is the conversation between an organization, whatever that organization is, and the people completing that form. So that's where the rubber hits the road. That's where your organization surfaces. That's where you start asking people questions that really are none of your business. Or that's where you start establishing the trust with a person to get them to give you the sorts of information that you're trying to collect. That's kind of the background to that paragraph. Okay, nice. Adrian? I guess for me, forms are almost very integral to a product, essentially. They're almost like the entry point into a product. So how do you design a form that is integral to that product because sometimes they're kind of designed separately in which case then you have a very separate journey a very separate kind of experience mm. well i think you hit the nail on the head there when you say separately i mean the form is should not be separate to the product the form should not be separate to other parts of the interaction that you're having with your customers or your citizens mm. or whoever you're talking to and that's a very common thing where i mean i can remember one of the projects that the organization that jerry and i met at and we were doing what was seen as an it project and somebody said oh we're redoing our communications and we said well actually that's within our area of interest and relevance and oh but you're it guys you know yeah. and then oh we're redoing some forms that you know we're interested in that oh but you're it guys and it's seen as a separate thing so you've got you know you've got a service or a system and then somebody gets the job of doing the form and the person that gets the job of doing the forms is often not quite random, but it may be somebody who's like expert in you know ASP or expert in using a particular tool or is a, a strictly a graphic designer or is a communications person or is the person who's available to do it. And it's not integrated and it really has to be integrated. The form is an integral and central part of your yeah. organization. And I think that's key to this topic. If the form's integral to the product, well then how do you structure a team to create that holistic experience? Mm. Oh, that's too deep for me. That's, I mean, <laughs> I, how do, I'll how go do, now. How do, sorry, how do you create a team to do it? I, I mean, I guess you, it's like any multidisciplinary activity. Right? You need to have the people around who can see this thing holistically, who can see it as a service, an end-to-end -end mm. system and process and set of support tools and work on them as an entity. But it really is important because otherwise you get things like calling something one thing in your marketing communications and calling it something else in your application form. And, uh, you know, people like the banks have struggled with this for years. One of the banks here had CRN on some of their forms and then other places they'd call it customer and other places they call it customer ID. And You know, you really have to, it has to be integrated. So I guess you do have to have a team that's charged with and mandated to and empowered with looking at all the aspects at the same time or as part of a whole. So I'm just trying to get deeper into this a little bit. So if I was going to create a new product and part of it has a form component and it's a brand new team, so who would you bring together in that team? And we talk about multidisciplinary teams, but who's in that team? Where do they report to? Do they report to different people? Reporting into the same line of management? That's much bigger than the conversation about just designing the form, though. I mean, that's how do we create a team to do anything that's mm -hmm. user-centred? I mean, the form is just a little, little part of that on one level. It's about having a team that can work together, that can 
do the user research, that can bring that research back into the organisation, having a team that can understand the business and the business requirements and can do the design holistically. Mm. So that's a much bigger question, I think, in, in many ways than who does the form design. I mean, it really does need to be absolutely integrated with whatever you're working on. All right. So let, let's just go back to the original topic, Jerry, and let's discuss what is a form? Like, what really is a form to you? That's uh, an interesting question. Uh, you know, I think if you went back 100 years uh, and you said to people, what's a form? They'd know it. It was a piece of paper that you filled in stuff on and, and that was it. And then we gradually moved where a lot of forms are online. You say, what's a form? Okay, it's that same type of thing, but we can do it online mm-hmm. as well. And then you say, well, actually, we can do it over the phone as well. We can do it mediated by a human or mediated by a machine, or we can do it mediated by a chatbot, or we can, in fact, have an AI fill in most of the form for you because they know yeah. who you are, and then you do the other bits. So I think it's kind of an amorphous question question and you say mm-hmm. what's the difference between a form and a survey I don't worry too much about it because I think we know what a form is in, at its broader sense and it is the tool that supports a conversation between an organisation and an individual usually mm-hmm. so something asks you a question to which you respond or you ask a question to which an organisation yeah. responds and I think it, it really has morphed a lot and I think will continue to morph a lot more so you know when people talk about forms and the appearance of forms for example that assumes that we've got a particular modality that we're talking about looking at Mm. them on a screen or on a piece of paper. I think increasingly we're going to be interacting with forms through other Mm. modalities. Um, So I think it's it's one of those questions. If you're working in forms design, I think the skill sets that are needed are very, very similar. It really is about understanding users, understanding their needs, understanding how to establish a relationship and supporting the flow of the conversation. So one way you could say a form is a conversation at its Mm. richest or an interaction at its least rich. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know for me personally, whenever I've been encountered and asked to design forms, I always try and bring it back to that real-world interaction as if I was walking into a store and I was looking for a form. And if somebody's there meeting me, I don't expect them to say, what age are you and what postcode are you from? I kind of find that to be a little bit weird. So um, it's interesting to see that, you know, that's a similar kind of thought process that you do. So moving forward into the next, say, the next 12, 18, 24 months in form design, obviously form bots and chat bots are going to become, well, they're already here, but um, what are your thoughts on how form design and chat bots are going to amalgamate? I don't know if they are going to amalgamate uh, as such, but I do see a lot of the functions that that traditionally would be carried out by a form being Mm. carried out now by a chatbot. And it's it's very much the same as when the insurance company started to have humans help you fill in your form. So now, if you do something like have an accident at your home or something untoward happens to you, Mm. many companies will advertise the fact that you can get on the phone and you can interact with a human instead of getting a form and filling it in either online or on paper and and submitting it. And what what those organisations are doing doing is they're, they're mediating the interaction, they're becoming the form filler. And that's very much the same as what a chatbot might do. You know, you can talk to a chatbot and have it do some of those things. I had a conversation with somebody recently that I thought was a chatbot and wasn't. And I tweeted the conversation, I just screen grabbed it and tweeted it. And then he tweeted his side of it because he noticed that on, because I tagged whatever the company was on Twitter. So we had these two conversations going on, uh, which is kind of weird. Um, but, you know, I think as AI has become more intelligent and form filling is mediated, I think it will become more sophisticated, also more dangerous, I think, in many mm. ways for us, because, you know, already we're being taken, well, taken advantage of is probably a bit harsh. No, not really. I think, you know, our information is being abused and misused um, and we're, our data is being mm. surreptitiously gathered and sold, mm. you know, quite obviously by the Ubers and the Facebooks and so on. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, as we provide more information 
automatically mm. to chatbots and to agents of various sort, I think that that will increase. That might so, be a bit of a sidetrack. Yeah, that's okay. So what are your thoughts as regards um, the presence of chatbots to support forms being completed? Is that a sign of a, of a poorly designed form or is that something different? I think it would really depend on the circumstances. I mean, one can envisage a situation where you've given permission for a chatbot to be available or to uh, mm. have access, you've accessed a chatbot in some way and you're trying to complete something and it, it facilitates that, then it could be a useful interaction. Mm. You could also imagine it being intrusive. I mean, you know, the chatbot can still very much be like Microsoft's Clippy. You know, it looks like you're writing a letter. It looks like you're filling in a form. Can you just, you know, like give a gesture? Yeah. I know, as you were saying that about Mr. Clippy, I know LinkedIn recently just announced that their integration, obviously they've been bought over by Microsoft, that when you're typing out your resume, that it's going to start querying jobs that are applicable on the LinkedIn network. So effectively, the, the sort of structure of forms are now moving more into the application worlds. So what are your thoughts on, on the movement into the application? I think that's been around for a long time where, where I guess you don't realise you're filling in a form mm, if, if you're doing your resume. It's invisible. I, I know that a few of the um, recruitment consultancies have been doing that for some time where the, you, you'll submit a resume and they'll have something go through, pick out the keywords, put it in their own format or put it in their own database or whatever. Mm. I mean, it's kind of a no-brainer that it's a logical thing for organisations to want to do, to say, well, let's, let's extract your amorphous information or somewhat amorphous information and structure it and put it in our database. And start to match it. Start to do whatever with it. I mean, do all your linguistic matching and whatever, mm. whatever's going on. Yeah. All right, so look, we're just going to move the conversation into a hypothetical scenario. So if you imagine there's a designer, a user-centered designer of some sort, and they enter into an organization, a large organization that's semi-mature in the design sense, and they realize that there's hundreds of forms out there in the wild, how can they bring form design into the consciousness of the organization with a view to creating better forms in the future? I think uh, good forms are supported by good communications. I mean, you can't just have good forms. You can't mm. have an organization that doesn't communicate well with people that has good forms. Yeah. So you, it has to be part of an overall journey, I think, where the form isn't to harp on about this. The form is just part of the overall interaction and conversation. I mean, there are some mechanical things that you need to do. Um, mm. you, you need to, you know, to get sort of geeky about it, you, you need to do an audit of all the forms and for every form find out who owns that form, who's responsible for it, what person or department or function owns mm. that form, uh, what information are you gathering why is it being gathered? What's it being used for? Is it actually being used? Are you duplicating some of that effort? And look at it from a, you know, a, I guess a, a very analytical point of view. Mm. Um, another aspect of it is to say, well, if, we, if we've got hundreds of forms, God love us. Well, surely we don't mm. have hundreds, but if we do, you know, you're going to need some sort of uh, consistency throughout all those forms. So you have to look at your branding. Does it support the branding? Your design uh, language, yeah. Yeah, just an overall design language, whatever that happens to be, uh, consistent navigation and flow. You'd look at consistency across multiple platforms. How does it look? on paper how does it look online how does it look on mobile how does it sound if you're supporting voice mm. and you'd have to embark on that journey but really you'd have to be embarking on good communications in general so you're not going to get good forms if you haven't got your communications in general working well okay and can you expand on that because i'm really more interested i guess in structure and how people behave and um so a cheeky question what's a bad form telling you about the organizational structure well, let me give you an example. An example consisting of two examples. Um, <laughs> so if I pick two government agencies from the state of Victoria in Australia, uh, one of them is the juries commissioner. So when, when you get a notification that you may be required to serve on a, on a jury, there are a number of things that may disqualify you or make you ineligible to be a juror. Things such as certain criminal records or being a member of the legal profession, or both, 
And, you know, you, you get to, th- these things are factors that you, you sort of tick or you select online or whatever to say, no, I'm not that, or yes, I am that. And they, it's a gateway or a funnel that says certain mm. people, you know, we, we won't proceed. With it's binary, yeah. Yeah. But in Victoria, what, one of the very first questions, it might have even been the first question in terms of getting the job roles that people had or, or their status was, the governor of Victoria. So everybody who got one of these letters was asked whether they were the governor of Victoria or not. And, um, you know, because <laughs> if you're the governor of Victoria, you can't be on a jury, which probably is reasonable. Yeah. Um, but anyway, Paul Doerr, the jury's commissioner, said, mm. um, hang on a minute, do we really need to ask everyone that? Let's just, <laughs> let's just delete that from the form. And if the governor happens to get a jury summons, then she or he can say, do I need to go to that and have one of their staff, you know, phone up and say what's the story right and you know that to me was a sign of a really intelligent efficient forward-looking customer-centered organization and from my knowledge of the way that organization works it it, it rings true I mean they actually do care about the people they're interacting with and they look they critique their own stuff and they say why why are we Mm -hmm. doing this why are we doing this how can we make things better so that's one example another example is another organization in Victoria government organization that I won't name um because it's a bit sad. Um, but they disperse funds under certain circumstances and they have a form that they send out to people to ask them to nominate their bank account details. Because, you know, I don't know where your listeners are, but in Australia, nearly all transactions are electronic. It's very, very rare to write mm. out a cheque. So they ask you for your uh, bank account details and you write in, currently it's a six-digit code and followed by an account number. And you have to fill that in in order to get paid by this organisation. Mm. But they require you to visit a branch of that bank and have a teller stamp or sign that form to say that, yes, that is a correct, valid bank account number. (laughs) Now, I actually queried this with the organisation and I lost and they ended up sending me a cheque. But I like that is just so utterly patronising and that shows an organisation that genuinely doesn't care about the people it's interacting with and, and you can envisage the conversation with the people doing this oh, some people give us the wrong information and then we try to pay to that account and then it's a problem and it, mostly it's a problem for us and there's a little bit of a problem for the person who wanted to get paid and didn't but instead of saying you know, instead of trying to look at how can we make this better for everyone they've just gone down this totally patronising 19th century pathway instead yeah. so that's is yeah. that a good example? Yes, that's a great example. So those forms expose the nature of those two organisations fairly thoroughly. It's really about how culturally how you consider customers really and where you place them in your organisation. Yeah. yeah, and whether you're willing to take the, the workload off your users or you're mm. quite happy to force it back onto them. And unfortunately, most people like to force it back onto them. <laughs> I think it's changing because, you know, people don't accept that sort of nonsense anymore or, mm. or they're much more likely to kick up and complain. Mm. Um, so I think there is a very strong drive. Toward, and, you know, when you look at government services, there's a huge drive towards being customer-centred mm. or citizen-centred because there's an awful lot of money involved, an yeah. awful lot of money to be saved by delivering really good quality services, particularly mm. online. Uh, and people do want to go to online forms and interact electronically with their all levels of government. So just looking at form design within organisations and say maybe they do or maybe they don't have user-centred teams, what kind of quantitative analytics would you look for to say that, okay, our forms are working or not working? 
Uh, there's a few basic things. I guess one of them is the number of errors on a form, the number mm-hmm. of errors that you're dealing with. Um, that's kind of easier on paper forms than it is online. But when you're doing a, a piece of forms design work, if there is a paper form, you go and you spend some time in the mailroom watching the forms come in and then go to wherever they're put online. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of organizations will say, we've just got some data entry people you know, converting it to online. Then when you go mm-hmm. and sit down with those data entry people, you realize they're actually adding value by interpreting mm-hmm. the forms. I, I've seen you know, uh, temporary work workers interpreting significant uh, occupational health and safety forms mm. without the organization having any awareness that that was going on at all. Yeah. So I look at error rates. Uh, I just um, think in one particular form I worked on, one of the dev guys said to me, oh, you've got a problem with one of the questions in your form. And I said, no, I don't. And he said, <laughs> <laughs> he said yeah, you do. Um, because one of, the, one of these things has got a higher dropout rate than the other. And I looked at it and it, it was right. One of the questions was misleading or difficult yeah. to interpret. So I think looking at your analytics of where people drop out of your form, that's really good. But basically, the t- are people completing the tasks that the form is supposed to support? And mm. are they doing it successfully? And, and how can you continuously improve yeah. that? So maybe you might be able to um, embellish a little bit more on that because one of the things about form design is the errors are only really visible when they've posted. So is there any methods that you know out there that are able to capture in real time that the errors that the users are having when they're entering in the forms? Oh, well, at a very mechanical level, you can do certain validations, you know, like credit card validity and date validity and things like that. Time spent. You you could look at the amount of time being spent in a form. Time spent is an interesting one. I mean, there are some Mm. forms that some people will complete very, very quickly and some people will complete, you know, the difference in task time is is an interesting one, Mm. I think. Um, But yeah, you can look at how long it's taken people to complete it, where the stop points are. If you're looking at form design and someone's entering in their, say, address and they had to do it four or five times... They eventually just do what the form tells them to do and then they move on. How do you capture that information? That sounds to me like a, a usability question and that's mm. the sort of thing I'd expect to have shown up in usability testing pretty yeah. early on. And you know, I guess maybe that's usability testing is something we should mention. Always do usability testing of your forms and always pilot them because as soon as they go out there, you're yeah. going to find, oh God, you know, like we called it this and mm. it made sense to everyone. But like I have a very short story. Can I tell yeah, you? Yeah, go, go ahead. So, uh, go ahead. years ago, I did some work with Privacy Victoria, which is the privacy commissioner in Victoria. And they had a form they sent out to a governmental organization mm-hmm. saying, What precautions are you taking with uh, citizens' data when you use portable devices like USB sticks and so on? Um, so, they sent out this survey, and about a couple of weeks later, they followed up and said, Anyone who hadn't answered, they followed up and said, If you don't answer the survey, we're going to set the privacy commissioner on you. That's going to be really hard. So, you know, tell us what's going on. And when they rang the Department of Education in yeah. Victoria, whoever they spoke to there said, Yeah, we passed that on to building services. And they said, Building services, why that? Because you use the word portable. And in Victoria, the word portable means one of those demountable cabins that they sometimes use as temporary schools. <laughs> so, like, you know, categorization schemes never work, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's a pilot. I mean, we wouldn't have found that in a pilot anyway. We did, in fact, test that. And even a, after testing and piloting, oddball things will happen. That's a brilliant story. That's a brilliant story. So look, we're coming towards the end of the, the topic in question here before we move on to the next segment of the podcast. But can you give maybe like three tips that you give to organizations on what they can do to improve the hygiene of their forms? Number one is a, a, an absolutely laser beam focus on the users. I mean, what are users doing? Understanding what they need to do and doing that. Two is being consistent across all of your communication, so making sure that when you're interacting with the organization on your mobile device, it's exactly the same as if you're interacting on the phone or mm. any other way. And three, is two enough? Usability. 
Well, I said focus on the users. That implies yeah. usability testing. It implies okay. piloting. It implies good visual design. It implies mm. accessibility. All, all yeah. of those things. The are, basics. So yeah, user centered design and business centered design. Right. That's the two things, right? Okay, so we're just going to pass you over to Mark. Um, you've got the the three questions from hell, as we're calling it. <laughs> so Jerry, we ask, I guess, every guest on the podcast three questions. You guess every guest around, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we'll ask you questions before we open it up to everyone here. Um, so what's the one professional skill you wish you were better at? Listening. All right, that was easy. <laughs> well, well li- listening in the sense that I, I find I'm not uh, sufficiently focused on people and on detail. So sometimes I'll come away from something and if I'm with somebody else, it's okay because I can say, what did they say in there? You know? Yeah. But I, I think, um, yeah, I'd, I'd, like to, I'd like to have that capability a bit, bit more strongly. Yeah, excellent. Um, if you were able to banish one thing from the industry, what would that be? Not what you said this morning. <laughs> I, I said people this morning. <laughs> uh, when you said the industry, do you mean the design community? Yep. You know, yeah. um, uh, egocentric behaviour. Okay. Mm. That's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> it's a popular one. Yeah. And um, what message would you give to an emerging HCD talent for the future? Um, I think... Really, if you want to be a user-centered designer, really focusing on users, really focusing on people and how they behave is the key thing. I think as a profession, we tend to get sidetracked into gadgetry and we get sidetracked into methods and we get sidetracked into thinking about things that are not central to what it is that we really need to think about. Um, so I think you know, looking at everything, say, how is that helping me get a better understanding of users and how is that helping me purvey that understanding into something that's... Um, Operationalizable, to use a horrible word. You know, it's mm-hmm. something that, that we can actually make something out of. How can we get that information and turn it into something? So I think that relentless focus on people and what they do. Like when I always say to people, when you're on the bus, what are people doing? You know, what, what, watching what people are doing and just uh, observing behaviour mm-hmm. and trying to um, infer what that might mean and and um, draw conclusions from it that you can then test through your design work. So that's kind of it. I mean, that focus, all the methods and all the other things are important, but they're peripheral and they follow on from that focus, I think. The core of people at you know, everything you do. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to go to the, uh, the audience. Any questions from the, the we crowd have in questions? here? questions? We do. We've got Vera Chan down the back of the room. Thank you for that. I'll, the key point that I take this morning was about a form is being the conversation between organisation and users. I think that's really key. So, and then kind of move on into good forms are good conversation. So, I kind of want to drill down into that. What do you mean by having good conversation? So, so sometimes forms can be very long in, in terms of asking the questions, like sort of like, you know, how would you like blah, blah, blah. Or sometimes they're very short, like name, date of birth. So, what is a good conversation? What's the, what are the things that you should look for in, in having a good conversation? Mm, okay. That's kind of one of those questions, thanks Vera, that's kind of one of those questions that's really simple and really deep as well because, I mean, what is a good conversation? Let's take that away from forms altogether. What is a good conversation? It really depends on so many things. One is it depends on the interaction that you're carrying out. So if I'm doing a transaction getting a coffee at the coffee shop, a good conversation is polite, uh, well-intentioned on both sides and it's efficient because there are probably other people waiting and the people are trying to get their work done. So I want an interaction that's pleasant, that's Mm -hmm. relaxed, that's stress-free and it gets the job done. You might want a conversation that's much 
deeper than that. Like, so if, if you're dealing with your medical practitioner, for example, and you're filling in a form prior to going to your medical practitioner, then I want that conversation to be respectful. It needs to ask me information that's appropriate for the interaction. So they can ask me the sorts of stuff that other people can't ask. So my coffee vendor can't ask me if I've had any sexually transmitted diseases or something, but maybe it's okay. For uh, I hope they can. <laughs> that was a sidetrack. Maybe it's it is okay for my medical practitioner to ask that. Yeah. There are times when it's appropriate to ask questions, and there are times when you want questions that are wordy, where you're actually conversation and you're contextualizing it. I guess one that comes to mind is not a particularly brilliant example, but there's some health monitoring app, and it asks you for your gender, and it says male and female are the only two options. Now that is considered generally very poor practice, but they say underneath mm. it because our database of medical information will only support this particular thing. So they're saying, you know, we'd like to do better, but we can't because of the database we're working Technical with. So at least they've given yeah. you, at least they've been respectful of you. They're saying, we're giving you two choices which we realize are inadequate, mm. but the reason we're doing it is because we're unable at this point to give you another one. And once you've got sufficient data, we do something else. So mm. like, that's a good conversation as well, even though on the face of it, it's bad because it's asking you a question that's got the wrong, you know, binary answer. It's contextualizing it and explaining it in yeah. such a way that it's respecting me okay. and acknowledging the fact that it has to make a faulty decision, I guess. Johan, uh, seems there's a question over here. Cool, um, thanks. So I work in the area of customer service and we also use a lot of forms, I would say, and uh, it's all part of the conversation. So because for us it's a conversation starter. I'm just curious, uh, because you touched on it before on AI and the impact it has, so the latest is obviously what we're looking for is um, giving the customer the answers already before they enter the form, right? And there's these tools now with AI and ticket deflection and you start typing in and the answer comes up. Is that the part of a good conversation or is it something the customer really mm. wants? What's, what's your experience? What do you think? I think, uh, and I'm not sure if I'm getting to the heart of the question, but my, my experience is that people are very, very happy to engage with machines if the machine gives them the outcome that they want in the shortest amount of time possible. You know, some years ago, people, I think, were very reluctant to uh, interact with machines. I remember when, in fact, I think it was Telstra brought in their um, voice recognition years and years ago. You know, a lot of people said, I want to talk to a human, but by the same token, 80% of the incoming calls were diverted to a machine and answered appropriately for that person. I think now we're expecting a degree of machine mediation. So I think people mm. are happy to interact with a machine or a human or a machine and a human, provided they get the outcome they want and provided there's the handoffs are done well. I mean, I think handoffs and handovers are really the issue in a lot of customer service stuff. Mm. You know, one thing people hate, regardless of whether they're talking to a person or machine, is when you get that, you know, oh, what's your account number? I just told that to the previous... Oh. Is that what you're talking about? That no, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think people in general are very, very happy to embrace technological solutions as long as they're taking them towards a, a pathway. And what they don't like, of course, is technological solutions that are shit. You know, like when you when you talk to a machine and it takes you down a pathway and then abandons you, you know, or, or, yeah. or gives you the wrong information or says stuff like your call is important to us. <laughs> <laughs> Please stay on the line. Um, any other questions from the room? Alvaro? This is going to be a hard one. I <laughs> know. Um, what do you think, what is the future of forms when there is no UI? I know you always spoke about conversations and so on, but when we go into the future of uh, zero UI and so on, what is your perspective on that? And second question is, we were working with an organization recently in which they have a behavioral insights department in which they try to nudge people to do certain things. So I also want to get your perspective on, on that. When we don't have an interface and we want to nudge people to do something, mm. how, how do you do that? Okay, so two questions. Um, so the first one was the, the, the future of forms and interaction, is that right? Where is it going? Yes, when there is no interface. Well, there is an interface 
always. Even if you imagine that when you're walking down the street, your face is recognised and your iris is scanned and, you know, something runs out and takes a DNA sample and then puts that into a database. I mean, it is still an interface, right? It's one that you may not be aware of. I think, you know, hiding the UI in general is a good thing. I mean, the less we have to interact with the machine, the better up to a point. And I guess the point, and this is an interesting one, um, what's the point at which we're happy to allow the machine to mediate what we're doing on our behalf? You know, and we're getting closer and closer to that. And, and in many ways, it's, it's just fantastic. It's really handy. Um, and in other ways, it's really scary. But I think we do need to think about the zero visible interface future, particularly with IoT stuff. I mean, you know, in the future, when you open the door to your house mm. and all your machines start saying, oh, my battery's flat. No, my battery's flat. You know, is everything talking to each other? Mm. Are we really going to go without the user interface or is it just going to be there's no user interface until everything falls over and then we've got to, you know, deal with trying to find out where the problem is and so on? That's a very long-winded and circuitous non-answer to your question. Um, <laughs> But I do think we're hiding the UI more and more, and it comes back to being respectful of the people that you're having a conversation or an interaction with, and how do you do that in a, in a successful way? And there are things that we can infer that people are probably okay with. I mean, would it be okay if I'm walking down the street and I'm limping, and a medical AI says it looks like you've got a problem you know, with your leg or your hip, and you need to have it replaced or something? <laughs> I don't know, but like, and it, it, it infers things on my behalf and makes things happen on my behalf. Is, is that mm. an appropriate form-filling behavior? I don't know. I mean, it's too big a question, I think. Yeah. And the second one was... How do you nudge people, actually, to, yeah, I think, uh, I think to do certain things is... when there is no interface? Again, like trying to go through that same thought, like just reflecting on that, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess the obvious way to nudge is to just not ask the question and take action on the person's behalf, you know? You know, traditionally nudge is stuff like having defaults that advantage, theoretically, the person filling in the form. So, you know, for your superannuation that it the default box is the one that gives you the best outcome in yeah. 20 or 30 or 40 years' time. When there's no interface, how do you nudge? I guess by peripheral cues, make one thing look more attractive than the other. I don't know. Mm. Uh, the other thing, I guess, is having opt-outs rather than opt-in. So, um, you know, the organ donation thing, I guess, is fairly typical, where if you don't take any action then you, in some countries, then you are an organ donor, you know, which is sensible. Mm. But I mean, you know, if you take it to its logical extreme, if, if you don't want to make, if there's no UI, you're kind of implying that you don't want to make a decision as an individual and therefore you're assigning that power to a, a third party. Mm. I don't know the answer. I knew that'd be a hard question. Anyone else with any other questions? Uh, Niall's got a question. Um, obviously from my career background, it's in recruitment and talent management. For someone, say, who's coming out of college, having studied technology or studied business, how would you recommend that they actually get into this sector? User-centered design in general? Yeah. Look, this is always problematic, and this is something that I, I get a lot when I talk to students, um, which I, I do from time to time, is how do I actually get into this area? I, I don't have a magical answer for it. Mm. I think, you know, you can go to the meetups. The networking is such a huge thing. Um, I always say to people, read the books, you know, get on the blogs, read the books, know what you're on about, know your topic. Mm. Um, be willing to work for an organization that's, that's not the one that you want to work for. Be willing to work in a role that's not quite the role that you want. You know, take a role that's peripheral to it um, mm. and just keep pushing in the direction to get into the, into the area that you love. I mean, it's, it is a very, very difficult 
question, I think. And I, mm. I, I don't have anything even approaching a magic answer. Yeah. yeah. One of the people that I meet quite often now who's very senior in the design community, I met many years ago when she had done an almost volunteer piece of work with, in fact, a recruitment organisation and got into user-centred design that way, started doing diary studies and some UCD things and sort of gradually moved through the field. That's yeah. somebody with a lot of drive and ambition and it's, mm. it varies per person, I guess. Anyone else? Aman, down the back. Hey, man. Um, so I got off like an international flight recently and the customs form that you fill in is probably the same one that I filled in when I was about 15 or so. Is there a point where forms don't need to change? Like, is it perfection or is it like complacency or like is there a reason why some things just don't change that's interesting I, that's a great I, question. I, I don't believe there's perfection on this in this world <laughs> perfection doesn't exist but i think you can get something that works really well and you can say okay that's we've got it nailed and there's some problems with it that we're going to live with by the same token i don't believe there's anything that we couldn't subject to continuous improvement usually by making it shorter so I don't believe there is a perfection. I mean, if you look at the um, marriage equality vote, that was an interesting one recently. That was, you know, a, a very, I can't remember exactly the question. I did make a note of it at the time. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a fairly straightforward question with a yes, no box. That was kind of, that's as good as that's going to get. You know, you, you couldn't probably re-engineer that any further and make it better, given the politics of sending it out as a survey instead of a vote. Yeah. No, let's not go there. But yeah, I, I think things like those forums are interesting because they are immutable. It seems like it's been exactly the same forever. I guess it's as good as it gets and they know they've got particular problems with it and they probably work around them. And they've got a captive audience. You know, you're sitting on a plane there. What, what else are you going to do? Here's a form you can fill it in. Yeah. Here's a form and let's see if you can fill it in in the dark. I tell you, they could, they could do is give you a pen along with it. That's one thing that I think would be yeah. user-centred. But you would always have a pen with you, Jerry. I do. I've got multiple pens. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. he hands them out to everyone yeah, else on the I airplane. Do. I open up my bag of tricks and they're like, hand them out. All right, so uh, any other questions before we wrap this up? No Do you know worry. one thing we didn't talk about? What? Colours and fonts and stuff like that. We didn't, but unfortunately we're, uh, we're out of time. <laughs> but that's good, because they actually don't matter very much. It just makes sensible decisions. But they often come up in these sorts of sessions. Yeah, accessibility is another one. But, like, you know, we could speak for hours on this. All right. Um, thank you so much, Jerry, for being on the podcast. It was absolutely Thanks for having brilliant. me, and thanks, guys, for fronting up. That was great. Thank you. And thanks to Future You for hosting us. Yeah. So there you have it. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you'd like to be part of the conversation or community, hop on over to thisishcd.com where you can request to join the Slack channel and help shape future episodes and connect with other designers around the world. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Music